My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I am your host, Chris Jenkins, and this is our very first episode. Uh, We're just excited to be here and bring you some great content on snakes. And I thought that, you know, with our first episode, that I couldn't really think of a better topic than, than talking about one of really the greatest species on the entire planet, the Eastern Indigo Snake. These are just giant, beautiful, predatory animals that just kind of symbolize a great symbol for snakes around the world, a great symbol for conservation and conservation of ecosystems that snakes require. So just just a great place to, to start our podcast. And so today we'll talk a little bit about their biology and their natural history. And we'll also spend a little bit of time talking about the Orion Society, Uh, which is an organization that I work for, and it's an organization that's dedicated and was founded to conserve the eastern indigo snake. So today I am joined by two of my colleagues, um, both of which work in association with the Orient Society. Uh, First of all, Houston Chandler. I have uh, an incredible uh, amount of respect for Houston and his abilities as a scientist and a conservation biologist. And he's been running a lot of our field programs with indigo snakes for a number of years now and just probably has as much field experience as anybody and has seen a lot of the things we're going to talk about. He's seen them in person. Uh, The other person joining us is Heidi Hall, and Heidi is actually in our fundraising department, but Heidi has a really unique perspective on the organization in that she's been here since the beginning. Uh, She was one of the staff members along with myself that founded the organization. And so she just has a really good perspective on the history, where the organization's been, the strategy, and how those strategies have changed over time. So she's going to be a great one to talk to about the Orient Society. Um, so with that, we will get into it. And I'm going to start with you, Houston. Uh, if you don't mind, I, I gave you a brief introduction, but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, who are you, and and you know, how did you get into this current position that you're sitting in today? Yeah, sure. So. I am actually, uh, like you said, Chris, Director of Science for the Orient Society. And what that means is that I oversee all of our uh, research projects. So I make sure that everything, all the people in the field collecting data, that that's all getting done um, in a scientifically valid way so that we can draw 
good conclusions about the uh, various factors that are affecting the conservation of these species uh, so that we really have the best data and the best information available uh, for all our research projects. As many of our listeners probably know, we work across a broad geographic landscape and with many different species. So it's really important to make sure that all these research projects are focused and done in a way that will ultimately be scientifically valid. And then at the same time, I'm also a PhD student at Virginia Tech right now, uh, studying both flatwood salamanders and eastern indigo snakes. So really happy to be uh, working on these projects and getting to learn some new stuff while working with two of the rarest herp species uh, in the southeast. So really happy to be doing what I'm doing right now. Yeah, that's great. You probably have some uh, some really jealous listeners now. It's just amazing they get to work on two uh, great species, indigo snakes and flatwood salamanders. I'd also say that, uh, you know, Virginia Tech is just quite a, a, an impressive school from a wildlife and a biology perspective. So uh, which department are you in there? Are you in the wildlife department or are you in forestry or biology? Yeah, I'm actually in the fish and wildlife conservation. And so Virginia Tech has a biology, forestry department, all those things. But the fish and wildlife department really is focused on more applied conservation research. So how do you take research and really apply it to rare animals uh, to make informed conservation decisions? So it's really a perfect department to be in uh, for the kind of work that we do uh, as Orient Society. Yeah. And you're in uh, Dr. Haas's lab. And uh, tell us a little bit about her lab and, and maybe some of the things the lab works on more broadly and, and maybe some of the things that some of your fellow graduate students are working on out of the lab. Yeah, Carol is actually a great person to work for. I got my master's working for her about five years ago now. And so she is a very good ecologist, uh, has worked on a lot of species, actually. She did a lot of her early work on birds, but now mostly uh, her lab focuses on herps. There's other students right now working on bog turtles, which is one, are one of the rarest turtles. Uh, in the United States. And then there's a big project focused on Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, working on both flatwood salamanders and some of the other herp species uh, that are on that base. So a really good group of people to work with, focusing on some re really rare animals. Uh, and like I said, a great place to be to learn how to work uh, with these species and do good conservation research. So, Houston, uh, how did you get into this? I mean, uh, you know, probably most people listening are, are into snakes, but becoming a herpetologist is is not a traditional career track, if you will. And so just curious, uh, you know, how did you get to the place that you're sitting right now? Yeah, I grew up uh, in South Georgia, have always been uh, exposed to the outdoors. Both my parents are uh, wildlife biologists. My dad studies birds and my mom studies mammals. So while most kids go to camp or something during the summer, I got hauled around to various biological research stations while my parents were teaching, spent a lot of time outside catching salamanders, helping do research. Uh, I remember at a very early age helping catch birds with mist nets. So I've really been exposed to this kind of stuff for a long time, uh, developed a real appreciation for the outdoors and for the uh, animals that we have in this part of the country and really just wanted to work with these animals and realize that 
there's really a problem uh, for many animals and many animals are facing extinction and wanting to do something that has a meaningful impact on that. Uh, and the work that we do is one of the best ways uh, to help those species and make sure they're here for many years to come. Your uh, your family gatherings must be quite interesting. You've got a herpetologist, an ornithologist, and a mammalogist. You've got almost all the uh, animals on the planet covered. So uh, <laughs> that's great. Uh, so that I, I mean, it's amazing. It must have been amazing to grow up like that and just spend so much time outside with parents who cared about wildlife and cared about the land and probably instilled a lot of that in you. And uh, I'm just curious, you know, in all those adventures you had as a child, mist netting, and uh, if you can remember back to kind of your first experience uh, with the snake, I'm guessing it, it was quite young as compared to a lot of people. Yeah, I, I've been catching things for uh, basically as long as I can remember. One of my favorite snake memories is I was actually up here in the mountains of Virginia near Blacksburg, where I am now. Uh, riding around with my mom and there was a rat snake in the road um, and I was at that point was used to holding snakes um, usually captive snakes but I was still used to it so I hopped right out of the car ran up and grabbed it uh, and that snake didn't want to be grabbed at that particular time by a, a over anxious child and I got bit and I just remember screaming and blood everywhere but it's still it was great I always, I like that memory um, and certainly didn't make me turn me off to snakes I still love snakes and so that was one of the early memories that I always like to talk about because it it, it just shows a love for snakes even though uh, they do bite sometimes. <laughs> That's great. Your first snake bite story. Uh, snake bites always interest me in particular, you know, doing a lot of education programs, the, the, the fear that people have of getting a snake bite, even with a non-venomous animal, it's this, it's almost like an irrational fear. People are just, uh, there's just something that's, that's so foreign or, or so scary about being bit by a snake. But in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, you know, your typical, you know, colubrid snake here in North America, their, their bites are going to be very, very minor, not hurt much. But it's a very shocking event for people that the psychology of that's always kind of interested me. But anyways, getting back on track, I think I'm going to shift gears and I want to talk about indigo snakes in particular. I've already kind of mentioned them as this just this great symbol and, and this large animal, really beautiful animal uh, that's oftentimes very docile in the hands uh, of humans. But why don't you t tell us a little bit about that, Houston? Do a, a little bit deeper dive. Talk about, um, you know, what what is an indigo snake? What what does it look like? And, and you know, some of the, the size features and the coloration. I'd just love to hear more about, um, you know, your perspective on this. Yeah, indigo snakes, they really are uh, special animals. You know, I, I knew about indigo snakes before I started working with Orian, but it's really hard to appreciate an indigo snake um, until you see one uh, firsthand. So like you mentioned, Chris, they are the longest snakes uh, native to the U.S. Big males uh, can reach lengths of over eight feet on some occasions. So they are very big animals. It's really hard to appreciate what an eight-foot snake looks like until you're 
holding one or seeing one in the field. Um, indigo snakes actually look very similar to some of our other more common species like rat snakes or black racers. They are solid black uh, over most of the body. And then they have some reddish or brownish coloration on the chin and face sometimes that's highly variable uh, between individuals. And then they get their name really because if you have them in the sun, especially in an animal that just shed, they get this really pretty uh, purplish to blue shine on their scales. And so even though they're really black, they get this nice indigo uh, sort of color on them in the sun. And so that's how they get their name. Very pretty animals for a snake that's really just uh, a big black snake similar to a black racer but they are really incredible and if you haven't seen one it is well worth trying to figure out how to see one uh in person yeah you mentioned that term black snake one of the questions i often get from people uh is questions about black snakes oftentimes snakes of that color all get put into one category and indigo snakes are one of those species in this part of the world. So I'm curious if you could just uh, get in a little more detail and, and talk to us about, you know, if you had an indigo snake in hand and, and some of these other black snakes, um, what would be some of the differences that people could recognize? That's actually a little bit of a tricky thing. Uh, see a lot of photos on Facebook, you know, blurry photos of a snake about five feet away. And it's often difficult to tell uh, indigo snakes and some of the other black snakes if you don't have them really in hand. Uh, the easiest way is indigo snakes are flat out bigger than anything else you can encounter. Uh, they're bigger around and they're longer and it's very noticeable if you see an indigo snake next to one of these other snakes, like a black racer or, uh, or a black rat snake, uh, there's some more subtle differences. Their scales are a little bit different. And then the coloration on the face is a little bit different. So like I said, indigo snakes typically have some brownish or reddish color on the chin and face, whereas black racers and rat snakes typically have either no color or some whitish color on the chin. Uh, so there are some subtle differences if you can get close to them, but from a distance, size really is the best way. Uh, and that can make identifying juvenile indigo, indigo snakes really tricky uh, in certain circumstances, especially for people not familiar with snakes. Yeah. So, so where do we find these snakes? Obviously, the Orient Society, we do quite a bit of work here in Georgia, but, uh, you know, they go beyond that. Just tell us a little bit about where you find these animals. And then maybe, you know, we were just talking about how they look, their size and their color. So, you know, tell us where you find it, but then how do those things change across, you know, the, the range of the species? Indigo snakes, uh, they are species, a species of the southeastern U.S., so their historic distribution uh, would have stretched from maybe extreme southern South Carolina through southern Georgia, Florida, and then west out into uh, Mississippi and Alabama. They have experienced pretty significant range contractions uh, due to a variety of factors, but today you can't really find indigo snakes in Mississippi or Alabama. And it's been many years since one has been seen in the Florida panhandle. Uh, so that means mo today most populations of indigo snakes are really restricted to southern Georgia uh, and peninsula of Florida. Uh, indigo snakes, they are an upland snake species. They are 
pretty much always associated with some type of upland habitat, at least during a certain portion of the year. They are highly mobile, so they do move around on the landscape a lot, uh, but they're often pretty close to some type of upland habitat. And then you mentioned uh, differences as you move from north to south in their range, and that's actually one of the more interesting things about indigo snakes. So in the northern portion of their range, they actually tend to be a little bit smaller. Uh, I've been working with indigo snakes for almost five years now, and I think we very rarely, maybe less than five times, caught in a male that's over seven feet. Um, in southern Georgia. So they don't get quite as big in southern Georgia as they do as you move south into Florida. That's where the biggest snakes have been found, uh, ones that approach and exceed eight feet. Uh, and then the coloration can vary a little bit too. We very rarely see individuals in Georgia that have a lot of red on the face. Those animals typically come uh, from farther south in Florida. I've never seen one with a lot of red on the face. Chris, I don't know if you're lucky enough to have seen one of those really pretty individuals. I have seen one in captivity that was from the wild, but um, haven't seen one in a wild setting. Uh, yeah, I, I always find that interesting with, with indigo snakes and reptiles in general. I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of Bergman's rule, especially having a mammologist as a, as a parent. But the concept that, you know, with a lot of animals, the, fur, the higher you go in latitude, say within North America, that the animals physically get larger. But it's interesting with reptiles, and they don't completely stick to, to this pattern. But you know, it's usually the opposite. You start to see more, you know, larger individuals of a species in, as you get into warmer climates. So just kind of an interesting, uh, you know, kind of difference between mammals and and reptiles. So, <clears throat> so let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about their ecology. And, you know, I talked early on and when I kind of, in the beginning of the podcast, I, I mentioned that their Latin name translated into ruler of the forest and, and I kind of called them these large predators. Oftentimes when I'm talking to people, I like to use, uh, you know, the term predator of predators. So yeah, take a couple minutes and just tell me what I mean when I say predator of predators and tell us a little bit about their diet what they're feeding on and their feeding mechanism, how maybe, you know, they kill their prey or acquire their prey? Well, uh, Lord of the Forest or Ruler of the Forest is certainly a good name for indigo snakes. Um, so we've talked about how big they are. And because they're that big, that means they have very few natural predators, uh, maybe things like coyotes or birds of prey when they're smaller. But a big indigo snake really is uh, resistant to a lot of that predation pressure. And it also means that they can eat a lot of things that smaller snakes can eat. And indigo snakes are interesting because their diets are very uh, variable. They'll eat almost anything that they can fit down their mouth. Uh, so big indigo snakes, I mean, they'll eat amphibians, they'll eat other snakes, uh, they'll eat baby gopher tortoises, mammals. So they really are uh, generalist in the sense that they'll eat anything, uh, that they can swallow, but they're well known for being a uh, snake specialist too. They do eat a lot of other snakes and actually a lot of people like having indigo snakes around, uh, because they're well known for eating rattlesnakes and, uh, copperheads. And so indigo snakes are 
very visual predators. If you see one, they have big eyes. And when you're watching them in the field, they're very alert. They know you're there. Uh, when they're crawling around, they know what's going on around them. They're always up looking around. And so when they're hunting something like a rattlesnake or a copperhead, they're actually very good at using their uh, big jaw muscles to attack the head uh, of venomous snakes. So they're They'll visually cue in and find the head of a rattlesnake or a copperhead, and they'll use their strong jaws to actually crush the skull. And so they can immobilize prey like that, whereas other snakes would constrict something. Uh, Indigo snakes don't do that. They use their big, powerful bodies and jaws to really kill snakes uh, and then swallow them. So they're very cool, very active predators. Uh, It's very cool to get to see one uh, foraging in the wild. I haven't actually gotten to see that, unfortunately. So the the one time I saw an indigo snake eat another snake, it was a diamondback. And uh, it was, they were both relatively small uh, individuals of their species. But the the indigo snake grabbed the diamondback kind of mid-body and then just walked its way up up the body of the diamondback and then just crushed its head. And, uh, like you mentioned those strong jaws and then swallowed the diamondback hole all the way to all the way to the rattle where the indigo snake and kind of the final scene just had this, this small rattle sticking out of its mouth. It was pretty amazing to witness. And so when I think about predators, like you're talking about, again, this predator, predator, this, this animal that's traveling around the landscape looking for prey, I think of animals such as tigers, crocodiles, large predatory animals. And these animals oftentimes move, you know, really long distances, have really big home ranges, and oftentimes they're brought into uh, different habitat types in search of those prey and maybe different habitat types at different times of the year. So I guess first, uh, could you tell, tell me a little bit about their movement? Um, you know, how, how far do snakes move and how large are their home ranges where indigo snakes that is relative to some of the other species we have here in North America. Um, and then I do want to get a little bit into their habitat use and how, how, you know, being this top predator influences that as well. Indigo snakes, yeah, they're a very good example of a top predator that moves a lot. That's actually one of the things that indigo snakes are known for is really making some pretty incredible movements. Uh, If you look at their home ranges, it's highly variable between individuals, and there's some also uh, some north to south variation in it. But really, you're talking about several hundred hectares uh, of land for a single individual Uh, throughout the year. So they are moving incredible distances. Uh, They've been tracked moving several miles in the span of just a few weeks. Uh, So they really can cover big distances and that is tied um, to their ecology. So I mentioned earlier that they are upland species and you can consider them upland snakes. But if you know anything about sand hills and other uplands in the southeast, those habitats are brutal during the summer. It's very hot. They're low productivity. There's not a lot there. 
so indigo snakes during the summer can't really hang out in those upland habitats. They have to move and disperse out into the landscape. And they typically go into either wetland edges or even into wetlands because those systems are more productive. There's more prey there. And so they're really an interesting animal that spans both some lowland and upland habitats uh, throughout the course of a year. Uh, and that's really actually an important ecological thing that indigo snakes do because they link those two, uh, those two different types of ecosystems, kind of like amphibians do when they migrate from uplands into lowlands. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, a number of years back, uh, had a friend of ours and a colleague of ours, uh, Javin Bowder, who you know very well, had him working on looking at some of those habitat differences between those upland areas where you're saying that the, the snakes spend the winter and then those lowland, more swamp areas. And in particular, what we were looking at is the temperatures and the, you know, kind of the microclimate as it relates to the snakes. And it was just amazing to see those, those upland areas where the snakes are spending the winter, when the summer hits, they just become, uh, you know, incredibly just inhospitable, hot, hot, dry, whereas these swamps, the difference in temperature from the snake's perspective was just truly amazing. And so, you know, obviously a lot of the prey that indigo snakes need are following some of those temperature differences. Um, but, you know, the, which which makes the indigo snake go for the prey, but it's also kind of a, a thermal or a temperature thing in that these sandhills would be a very hard place to live in, in the middle of summer. So... Uh, how about uh, talk a little bit about reproduction? I'll tell you one of the when I first started working with indigo snakes and moved to the southeast, that was one of the aspects of their biology, in particular the timing, that kind of surprised me most as compared to most uh, species of snakes that that I was familiar with. So, talk a little bit first about reproduction. You know when it happens, how it happens, um, and then I, I want to talk a little bit about you know, eggs and nests and hatching and some of that as well. Yeah, you're right. Their, uh, their reproduction is interesting. And a lot of people, the first time they hear about indigo snake reproduction, it kind of surprises them. Even, uh, people who are familiar with, uh, herps and how herps usually do things. So we mentioned that indigo snakes spend the winter up on sand hills, uh, usually associated with gopher tortoise burrows, uh, as places of refuge. And one of the things that they're also doing, uh, in the early, late fall or early winter, uh, October, November, December, is that they are actually mating during that time of year. So males will come up to the sand hill and they'll actually do male-to-male -male combat and compete for females, uh, much like you, if you've seen videos of rattlesnakes uh, wrestling or cottonmouths. It's a very similar process for indigo snakes. Um, indigo snakes, though, they're actually pretty violent sometimes. We've caught in some individuals smaller males that have some very nasty wounds uh, that we think are probably due to a bigger male in the area telling them to uh, go away, basically. And so they do that and they, so they uh, breed, the males come out and they breed in the late fall, early winter, and then they spend the winter on the sand hills. And then females really aren't laying eggs um, until really the next spring, May or June-ish, uh, there's not a lot of natural 
observations of indigo snakes reproducing and laying eggs, as you might expect. Uh, if you know anything about snakes, they're very hard to study. So what we know is from only a few observations, uh, but they're generally laying eggs that time of year, often somewhat associated uh, with gopher tortoise burrows in the area around a gopher tortoise burrow apron. And then one of the things that really is surprising about indigo snakes, so they're this huge snake, uh, you would think their reproductive output would be fairly high. It's actually very low. Um, even though they're so big, they really lay clutches only about four to 12 eggs somewhere in there. Um, sometimes in captivity, you can get bigger clutches out of them. But in the wild, they're really laying small clutches uh, of only a few eggs. They do have an advantage of these eggs are very big. Uh, they're bigger than probably any other snake eggs uh, in the southeast. And so they're, the juveniles come out very big and capable of hunting uh, a pretty wide variety of animals because of those big eggs. But it really limits the number of individuals uh, that you can breed in a year and that you can add to the population in a year. And that has important uh, ramifications for conservation biology. Yeah. So back to the nest. You Have you ever seen a nest in the wild? No, I've never seen one in the wild. Yeah, I only know of from the literature, and maybe there's more that you can speak to, of maybe four or five ever found uh, in the wild. And, and like you said, uh, associated, I think two or three of them were associated with kind of abandoned tortoise burrows um, and then maybe one or two are associated with kind of like, you know, inside of rotting logs or underneath structure like that. Uh, so are there more than those records that I'm talking about or is that what you're familiar with as well? Uh, that sounds about what's been described. There's a lot of obviously observations uh, from the captive populations, but wild snakes, I mean, it's very hard to follow them and to figure out what they're doing if you don't have some kind of transmitter on them. So, yeah, we're, we don't know a lot about that uh, aspect of their biology, really. Yeah. Okay, well, let's let's uh, shift gears once again, and we're still going to talk about indigo snakes, but I want to talk a little bit more about some of the work that the Oriane Society has been doing, and and talk about you know some of the work that you've been running, and and so uh, when we founded this organization. Uh, as you mentioned, first of all, currently, you know, we work in a variety of landscapes and a variety of species. But when we founded this organization, we were focused uh, exclusively on the eastern indigo snake. And so what we did is we tried to develop kind of a, a comprehensive program and, that had different components. And, and you've been running a lot of those components for a number of years now. And so I just wanted to kind of have a conversation with you uh, about some of them because I think they're all uh, very critical uh, to conserving this species. And I want to start with probably the, the area that you've been most involved with, and that's the monitoring of indigo snake populations. And you know, whenever you talk about monitoring, sometimes you'll get the response that, you know, why monitor a species? Why go out every year and and, and try to assess the status of, of a given species and their population? So uh, maybe you just kick it off by, you know, what's your perspective on why monitoring any species and in particular eastern indigo snakes? Why is that even important? Why should we be doing that? 
Yeah, actually, indigo snakes are probably a good example of why monitoring is important. So we talked a lot about where indigo snakes live and the kind of habitat they live in. Um, If you know anything about the southeast, you know that it is an incredibly uh, degraded and disturbed from a natural uh, environment perspective. So these are these upland habitats that indigo snakes live are typically longleaf pine habitats. That ecosystem exists at less than 3% of its historic range. So you have a species that we know has declined. It's uh, had range contractions. We know populations within the existing range have declined. And it's living in this landscape that is very heavily altered from its historic um, what it would have been two, 300 years ago. And so there's all kinds of threats that indigo snakes now face that they didn't face, uh, at various points in their history. So that can be things like, uh, vehicle mortality or purposeful killing by humans or things like that, uh, patches getting logged or turned into cornfields or whatever it may be. Um, so they have to deal with all these various threats now that they didn't have to deal with at uh, certain points. And so the only way to really assure that these this in, uh, threatened species, they are listed on the Endangered Species Act as threatened, um, is stable throughout their range is to conduct some kind of monitoring. And what that means for us in southern Georgia is that we go during the winter months to uh, about 60 sandhill sites over three years that are occupied or could be occupied by indigo snakes. And we go out and we use small survey teams and we look for these snakes uh, on multiple visits. And we try to confirm how many sites are still supporting indigo snake populations. Um, And this is really kind of the first step to making sure Uh, that populations are stable at a landscape scale. So if you start seeing uh, a lower number of sites occupied uh, by indigo snakes, so that means there are indigo snakes there present during the winter, if that number starts going down, that indicates that we have a problem and that uh, pretty dramatic conservation actions are probably needed to solve that problem uh, quickly before it becomes a sort of a, a landscape scale thing that you can't deal with Uh, for this species. And so monitoring is really the first step to making sure that populations are either stable or increasing uh, for these rare species. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree with you. I think monitoring is critically important to, you know, as part of most conservation programs for most species and certainly uh, for indigo snake conservation. Uh, We don't have time to get into it today, but I do think it's really important to tailor your monitoring program, both the design as well as the techniques you use in the field. Tailor that to the information that you're trying to get about the species um, and tailor it to the species uh, biology. Um, and so let's, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, a topic that so many people are interested in, a program that so many people are interested in that comes up uh, quite a bit. It's probably received uh, some of the most of the press or a lot of press of all the things that we've done as an organization. And that is the concept of indigo snake reintroduction. So without getting into great geographic uh, detail as uh, in terms of where this is happening. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, the reintroduction program and and what the goals have been and and kind of where we are within that you know set of goals. 
It's funny you mentioned getting the most press and the most questions about that aspect of indigo conservation. Um, I gave a presentation at the World Herp Congress in New Zealand in January, and basically every question that I got asked was about indigo snake reintroductions, even though it was only a probably two-minute section of a 15-minute presentation. So it, it really does capture the imagination uh, of both the public and other scientists. So we've talked about uh, indigo snakes, how, how their range has contracted. And one of the things that you need to do uh, to recover a species so that it's stable enough to be downlisted and not considered endangered or threatened anymore um, is if the habitat exists, is putting it back into places that it has been extirpated or driven extinct. Uh, and so for indigo snakes, that means the Florida panhandle west and the Alabama and Mississippi. Um, and so this project started, what is it, about 10, 11 years now when Orianne started, Chris? Is that right? Yeah, that sounds about right. And probably started actually a couple years before that with some of the folks at Auburn and, and some of the other partners. But but yeah, about that yeah. time. Frame. Yeah, and the current project is actually building on some older work doing the same kind of thing. Um, but so now there is an indigo snake, uh, uh, captive colony and that captive colony produces young indigo snakes, uh, every year. And then those indigo snakes are released right now at two sites, uh, one in Alabama and one in the Florida panhandle. And those sites are, the goal of this project is to make those sites have a stable, self-sustaining um, indigo snake population that doesn't require any kind of additional additions of snakes. And so that would be, if that was successful, ultimately, that would create two new populations in a portion of the range where there are currently no populations, uh, which is a big deal for long-term conservation success. Uh, right now, the one site has almost 200 snakes released at it, and the other site has right around 60. Uh, so it's been successful so far. Um, we've met a lot of the goals, although it's been slower than it originally would have. It's uh, hard to produce enough snakes in captivity for these releases. Um, but with continued funding and continued support uh, with a broad group of partners, it, the both of these reintroductions will probably be successful in the next 10 to 20 years. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a quick break and tell you guys that reptiles are declining around the world. As an example, turtles are the most threatened group of animals on the planet, with over 60% of all species classified as endangered. The Orian Society works every day to ensure that there's a future for these amazing animals. If you care about reptiles, amphibians, and their habitats, become a member of the Orian Society today by visiting www.orian.org. Yeah, and I just wanted to make a quick comment on the reintroductions in general and their importance. So, you know, the indigo snake is a listed on the Endangered Species Act as threatened, and every species that's listed has a recovery plan. And the recovery plan for indigo snakes states uh, that a set number of populations will be restored in this region that that Houston's talking about. So it's it's critical to know that 
these reintroductions are, um, you know, if we want to, you know, get the eastern indigo snake off the endangered species list, this is one of the things that we, we need to do. But I do also want to stress, again, mainly because these this reintroduction program just draws so much excitement out of people and it should um, but i do want to stress that it is a smaller component of the overall conservation work for the species and you do need to to keep that in perspective i mean there there are other things that are happening that are arguably much more important for the sustainability the longevity uh, of this uh, of this species that things that maybe aren't as um, exciting to people in, in some ways, but that it is just important to keep that in perspective. The reintroductions are critically important. They're important for recovering this species, getting it off the endangered species list, but it is one, I wouldn't know if I'd call it a small component, but it's one component of a much, much bigger uh, recovery plan and conservation program. So it, it's, uh, that's kind of an important perspective to have. I want to I want to take just a minute and talk about our land conservation programs and I want to talk about it in the context of another species because this species is driving a lot of the land conservation for indigo snakes and that other species uh, is the gopher tortoise and Gopher tortoises are are just these amazing uh, large turtles, one of four species uh, that that live in uh, in North America, and they're really special for a number of reasons. We've talked about their burrows, um, and you know, Houston, what can you tell us about the burrow itself, and then also, you know, how the burrow functions ecologically um, that that you know, makes the gopher tortoise such an important animal. Yeah, it's, it really is hard to describe how important tortoises are. Um, it would be hard to really think of an animal that was more ecologically important throughout its range, uh, than gopher tortoises are. So as you mentioned, they build these long tunnels, um, in sandy soils, and they're really the only animal that consistently builds this type of structure on the landscape. So gopher tortoises have big front paws that allows them to dig uh, real easy, really easily in these soft, sandy soils. And these burrows are incredible. They can go uh, anywhere from so 15 to 25 feet underground. And the tortoises spend most of their time, upwards of 90% of their time, in this burrow. Uh, for the tortoises, it's providing shelter both from predators and from environmental extremes. We talked about how hot it is on sand hills, uh, but also during the winter from cold temperatures that could be lethal to these animals. And the thing about these burrows is it works for a tortoise, which means it also works for many other species uh, for the same types of reasons. So indigo snakes uh, spend the winter in, when they're in the parts of their range where they overlap with gopher tortoises uh, on sand hills associated with tortoise burrows. And they do that because the tortoise burrows are one of the only available refuges uh, from thermal temperatures that would be lethal. So if it's 30 degrees outside and indigo snakes can't be sitting on the surface, uh, they go down to the bottom of these tortoise burrows and they hang out in a thermally stable environment uh, until the temperatures warm up and they can come back on the surface. And so you really would not have 
uh, indigo snake populations in the southern Georgia, whether you have them without gopher tortoises. Uh, gopher tortoise burrows have been used by upwards of 300 other species. There's many species that are obligates of tortoise burrows, meaning that they have to have tortoise burrows or tortoises to survive. Uh, so if tortoises were to disappear from the landscape, you're talking about multiple other extinctions or range contractions of other species. And so tortoises really are one of the most important species for conservation in the Southeast. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a great way to put it. One of the most important species for conservation in the Southeast. And, you know, this species has been driving a lot of our conservation work, a lot of our land conservation work, because by doing good work to conserve gopher tortoises, we are in the process conserving the critical winter habitat that indigo snakes need and thus conserving the indigo snake. Um, and so we've been working on land conservation, uh, you know, both from like an acquisition, protecting land on the ground and a habitat management and restoration perspective. We've been doing that since the beginning. And now we're part of a a large effort in Georgia uh, called the Georgia Gopher Tortoise Conservation Initiative. And the goal is to conserve over half, um, which would be 65 of the state's viable populations of gopher tortoises. So a group of biologists uh, at the Gopher Tortoise Council got together and uh, decided to define a viable gopher tortoise population as, as a a group of 250 contiguous animals. Um, so we are trying to conserve 65 of those within the state of Georgia. And when I say conserve, I mean protect the land that those tortoises live on. Um, and that can mean you know, ownership by the state. It could be public land. It could be under conservation easement. It could be owned by a nonprofit like the Orient Society, um, but also ensuring a long-term system to manage these properties in perpetuity. And when I say management, for both gopher tortoises and indigo snakes, um, and really many of the rare species we have in the Southeast, Fire is critically important. Um, it's it's probably our greatest tool for indigo snake conservation uh, is fire. And that's oftentimes surprises a lot of people. Um, we've dealt with uh, campaigns such as Smokey the Bear, which maybe work in some ecosystems. But here in the southeastern coastal plain, fire is critically important. Um, but wildfire doesn't happen on these landscapes uh, like it used to. So we really have to implement uh, it in a prescribed manner to get to create the indigo snake and gopher tortoise habitat uh, that, that we require. So Houston, you've been, I know we have a lot of great people working on fire, but you've been kind of overseeing that, that program for the last number of years. Uh, maybe you could just talk a, a little bit about that process. How do we go about restoring and managing uh, indigo snake habitat? And I know that's not necessarily your ex area of expertise, but certainly at like a 30,000 foot level, I think you could give, uh, give us a pretty good understanding. 
Yeah, I can give a brief summary and we could honestly probably talk about this issue for a whole separate podcast because it is really a complicated uh, landscape scale issue, like you said, for many of these species in the southeast. So I mentioned earlier uh, that many of these habitats are longleaf pine dominated. And that was an ecosystem that, like you said, is really evolved alongside natural wildfires. Um, so these would have been historically lightning caused fires that burned in the summer months. Um, there were few barriers to fire on the historic landscape in the southeast. So you would have had fires that would have burned thousands, tens of thousands of acres in a single fire, basically stretching, I mean, from river basin to river basin through upland habitats. And so that obviously that landscape does not exist anymore. There are too many human barriers and altered landscapes. And so what we have to do now is we have to go and set fire um, into these habitats to sort of mimic this natural ecosystem process that would have once occurred. Um, so I'm sure everybody listening has seen photos of prescribed fire. It pretty much is what it sounds like. You go out and you set the woods on fire. Um, there's a lot of things that go into it about time of year for certain units and time of day, the environmental conditions, all that sort of stuff. Um, but really the goal is to return the forest to a pine dominated canopy of, uh, so pines at a low density and then thick herbaceous grasses and that kind of vegetation along the forest floor. And when you don't have fire, you lose that habitat structure in these systems. And then that's not good for tortoises and other things like indigo snakes. And so really what we're doing with fire is just mimicking a natural ecosystem process uh, to maintain the integrity of longleaf pine forests. Yeah, and, and I want to just stress the importance of it again. You know, I talked about reintroduction, and the reintroduction is very important. It definitely receives a lot of the attention, but I will say that this type of habitat restoration and management is certainly, uh, you know, one of the largest things that receives the, the largest amount of our energy um, here at the Orient Society, and it is also one of the most important things. If I, if we could only do one thing for the conservation of of indigo snakes across the southeast, uh, the Orient Society would have an extensive prescribed fire and habitat restoration program. So um, it may in some ways to many people not be as exciting, but at least recognize how critically important that it is. And that's kind of a good segue, talking about the Orient Society. I, I want to uh, move on and talk, uh, just kind of end this podcast by talking a little bit about the organization, how we ended up coming about, and, and some of the major uh, transitions that we've gone through over the years. And I'm primarily going to talk with Heidi Hall about that. Um, I've already given her a little bit of an introduction at the beginning, but Heidi, um, why don't you go ahead and just uh, just tell us who you are and, and what your current position is. Sure. So I am currently the director of development for the organization, but I kind of feel like I've done a little bit of everything with the Orient Society. Uh, but right now, that's my fair, job is <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, I started out with the organization uh, in the very beginning in 2008, 
and my current position as a development person, basically what I do is I look for opportunities. So whether that's partnerships or funding opportunities, um, anything that will further help advance the mission of the organization. So I work with a lot of foundations. I work with government agencies to get grants and uh, corporations and individuals like our members. Great. So how... Tell me a little bit about your background in terms of your upbringing, specifically how it relates to to where you are today, working with reptiles and amphibians, and maybe wildlife more more generally. I know you've kind of, in some ways, come to reptiles and amphibians later in life. <laughs> so, yes, uh, anyways, yeah, yes. tell us a little bit about that. Later in life makes me sound old, but. Um... I would say that I have a little bit of a whirlwind of of a story. So reptiles and amphibians were not my focus point. Um, I've always been outdoorsy and really into uh, the nature and learning more about our natural environment. Um, So when I went to college, I actually got a degree in fisheries resources first and then wildlife biology. and it turns out I am a better organizer than I am a biologist. So when I started with the organization, um, I was mostly doing administration work, trying to figure out how everything functioned in a nonprofit. So I would say snakes particularly were always kind of on the fringe for me, always kind of understood that they were important um, to our ecosystems. But knew about them on a very coarse level. So this um, this has been a learning experience for me, not only working with snakes, but the people that love snakes. Great. Well, I'm, I'm going to take a minute and I want to talk about our name and I want to tell the story uh, of how the 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 inspiration for the Orian Society came about. And Orian is the name of a young girl. And uh, Orianne had the opportunity uh, to, she was in Florida and she had was with her family and she had the opportunity um, at a zoo to handle a large Eastern indigo snake. And she asked her father, who, who was a philanthropist uh, in a number of arenas, but one of the areas he, he was uh, doing a lot of philanthropy was in kind of big cat conservation, conservation of things like tigers and lions. And so she was holding this indigo snake, and, and she asked her father, she said, well, I'd like to have one of these as a pet. And her dad said, well, you know, you, you can't, this is an endangered animal. This is not an animal that, that you can just have. And, and so she kind of thought for a second and then, you know, looked up at her father and said, you know, dad, can you do for indigo snakes, what you're doing for tigers? And, uh, being a, being a good father, he tracked me down. I was working for wildlife conservation society at the time. And he, approached me with this idea, the idea of creating uh, a nonprofit that was focused on the conservation uh, of indigo snakes. And that's how the Orian Society uh, was born. And what we did was we initially developed a 
kind of a sweet uh, of, of comprehensive approach to, to conservation. And maybe, Heidi, you could give us a little bit of historical perspective uh, when we first developed the organization uh, on some of the different programs we developed. We've talked a little bit about some of them, but, you know, kind of what our thought process was and what some of those programs were. Sure. Um, first of all, I'm going to correct you, though. So this was how Project Orianne was formed. Um, so a lot of people aren't aware that when the organization started, we were Project Orianne and we were in that mode of focusing entirely on the conservation of eastern indigo snakes. Um, so when that started, as Chris mentioned, he and Dr. Kaplan started to share this vision of the organization. Um, and that started by bringing a bunch of people together. And, and I think it really speaks to the charismatic nature of the indigo snake, the number of partners that sat down in a room prior to the organization ever actually being official. Um, there was the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Nature Conservancy, private uh, landowners, basically anybody that had a stake in Eastern indigo snake conservation got together to determine what needed to be put in place to conserve this species. Um, and what that boiled down to essentially was land protection, land management, research, monitoring, and reintroduction. And you guys touched on a little bit of all of those. Um, but I would say that once those factors were written down, they were put into place that these were the things that we needed to conserve the Eastern Indigo snake, um, the ball really started rolling. And in 2009, at the very early start of the organization, we purchased our first 900 acres from an individual in South Georgia and uh, started the Eastern Indigo Snake Preserve, the Orient Eastern Indigo Snake Preserve. Great. And um, another really uh, important milestone uh, that we hit, and thank you, Heidi, for for keying in that project orient piece but the huge milestone for us was that transition so going from project orient to becoming the orient society and there was more behind the scenes the more than just a name and really what was happening is we were transitioning from what's called a private operating foundation, which is a type of company here in the United States, which is is like a family-oriented nonprofit. Or, and we're transitioning to a public charity. And so we developed a strategic plan with the Kaplan family to transition this organization from something that was um, essentially, uh, you know, run by the family to something that was run by the public, something that had a very diverse board of directors, uh, something that had, had a broad membership and was funded uh, more broadly. And, and that's where we, we sit today. But I guess, Heidi, that uh, what I'd like you to talk a little bit about is the component of that transition. First of all, I mean, we've both been here through all of it. I mean, it's incredible. It was incredibly difficult. We're still in the midst of it. Um, it, it was, you know, certainly one of the most difficult and challenging things that I've ever experienced um, in, in my career. But one interesting thing that we we did is is we shifted from that single species comprehensive approach to indigo snakes, and we broadened our program into a series uh, of place based initiatives. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about 
the process of doing that um, and how the programs we decided to develop and how, you know, how and why we decided to develop some of those. Right. So um, as you mentioned, in the process of expanding into a public charity, uh, we felt it was necessary also, um, not only from a conservation standpoint, but from a kind of a longevity standpoint of the organization to expand our programs as well. Um, so I will say that while we were project Orient and and we were focused on Eastern Indigo Snake Conservation, we were still doing other projects kind of outside of the Eastern Indigo Snake world. So, um, for example, uh, we have a program now called the Appalachian Highlands Initiative. Um, in 2010, we started working in that area, monitoring or inventorying for bog turtles. And it was kind of a side project that we were doing outside of the Eastern Indigo Snake work. But that kind of led to us establishing the Appalachian Highlands Initiative officially in 2013. Um, and now we work on species such as the conservation of timber rattlesnakes and the eastern hellbender and other Appalachian um, salamanders in that initiative. Kind of the same thing in our Great Northern Forest Initiative. We started working with timber rattlesnakes in Vermont in 2010, but we did not make the Great Northern Forest Initiative official until 2017 when we started working on wood turtles. So I would say based on those projects that we started very early in the organization, we expanded to broaden our scope through these very selected landscapes where we focused on single species conservation that ended up hosting a suite of other species. That's great. Thank you. And then the, the last piece I want to talk about with the Orient Society, and then we'll we'll wrap things up here, is I want to talk about where, you know, kind of some of the transitions that we're in the middle of now. So our board has been growing uh, pretty significantly, and you've been, uh, you know, very involved in that. And uh, you know, we're we're talking about even transitioning from that kind of place-based initiative. You mentioned Appalachian Highlands, uh, Longleaf Savannas. We're talking about transitioning from that, kind of moving to this three-pillar type system with with science, uh, applied conservation, and and conservation communications as those pillars. And I wonder if you could just, you know, take a couple minutes here at the end and and talk to us about those three. Uh, initiatives very generally, and then, uh, you know, some of the thought process behind uh, making this transition at this time. Um, well, I'll start, is, as we talked about, um, we have our place-based initiatives. So we have certain places where we work, as, as we discussed. And then recently, as Houston mentioned, he is at Virginia Tech, and he is leading our science initiative. And maybe we could let him talk about that a little bit more. But I'll go ahead and talk about conservation communications, which is that third initiative, which we have always done on kind of a, a smaller level. So in our opinion, kind of the number one thing that you can do for conservation is get everybody on board. Success is having people be aware of what you're doing and supporting what you're doing. So in the past, we have always done um, education outreach in some form, whether that was going to different events or, you know, we had our social media presence. Um, we put out a magazine, we put out our annual report, but they were 
not really a focus of ours. And so moving into um, 2020 now and 2021, we are going to focus heavily on conservation communications. That's our newest initiative. And what that entails is expanding our audience, getting people more involved with conservation. So uh, people may have noticed that we have an increased social media presence. Um, we're putting together short films. Uh, one of the things that we decided to do actually was this podcast and, and all in the hopes that we can educate the public, not only about the importance of reptiles and amphibians, but some of the other things that we do. So I think when you think of the Orient Society, um, you automatically think reptiles and amphibians, as you should. But as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, we do a number of other things, our land restoration and conservation, uh, you know, being ahead of that. So, you know, not only are we working to conserve reptiles and amphibians, but a lot of the work that we do to achieve that mission is having a positive impact on a lot of other species. And so we are looking to have everybody on board, just knowing that, you know, our work is so encompassing of conservation in general. Um, we're hoping to get your birders and your naturalists and your, you know, outdoor enthusiasts in general um, on board with reptile and amphibian conservation. I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you decided to kind of highlight that conservation communications leg or pillar because you know again especially with snakes i mean don't get me wrong land conservation and habitat restoration and reintroductions and some of these things that we've been talking about are, are really important to any program but you know snakes are are just so misunderstood receive so much persecution that i just feel like communications outreach, education um, is just really, really important. So I'm glad you highlighted that. Um, and then if, if people are interested in learning more about the Orient Society, uh, what can you tell folks about um, how they can become a member, how they can find information about us? Yeah, you can find out more about us on any of our social media channels. So basically, that's YouTube, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. We are at Orient Society at all of those. And then I encourage you to go on our website at www.orian.org. Um, we have a number of posts that go up on our website Um Monthly, we have several blog posts that are highlight uh, the work in all of our initiative areas. Um, and you can also become a member or donate at the, on the website as well and visit our online store where you can get hats, shirts, mugs, uh, you name it. So there is a number of ways to support the Orient Society, whether that's spreading the word, um, becoming a member, giving a general donation, and you can do all of that on the website. Thank you. If you care about snakes, uh, go check us out. Now, you two are going to be my guinea pigs and uh, something that I want to start as a tradition, as part of this podcast. I want to hear everybody's best snake story. And that can that's a very broad category. It could be in captivity. It could be in the wild. It could be when you're young, when you're old. And, and we'll, we'll come back to you, Houston, and uh, not to put you on the spot, but, but I'm sure you have lots of snake stories, but I want you to dig deep and think about that one story that you think uh, uh, my, or the listeners and myself would like to hear the most. 
<laughs> I actually had to think a lot about this when I was preparing to do this. Um, even though I've seen a lot of snakes and all, I'm not honestly that great at seeing snakes for some reason that my <laughs> wife often finds more snakes when we're out than I do. I don't know why that is, uh, but it just is. So I had to think pretty hard about finding, uh, thinking about what a good snake story would be. And I ultimately decided on a cotton mouse story. So everybody's heard something about cotton mouse. Most of it is completely made up and fictitious. Uh, so I have kind of a soft spot for cotton mouse. And so that's what I decided to go with. So when I was working on the Flatwood Salamander Project the first time, uh, one of the ways that we monitor the salamander populations is through a drift fence. And so that's just a fence that's set up around a pond uh, with some traps on it. So when the salamanders come to the pond, they get caught in the traps. And this is interesting because it creates a potential food source for other animals, um, not just from the salamanders, but also all the frogs and things. And so we had actually an issue where cottonmouths learned to hunt alongside the drift fence. And so they would coil in the same place every night um, in a typical ambush position, waiting for frogs or other things to hop along the drift fence where they could easily um, eat them. And we actually had a disease scare one year, which turned out just to be a lot of cottonmouth envenomations of leopard frogs. Um, so it was really fascinating to watch these cottonmouths actually learn to utilize an artificial thing that we had installed on the landscape um, to hunt and better catch their prey. And we even saw them, they learned how to go in and out of the traps. So they'd go in a trap, you'd walk up and then they'd zoom right out of the trap where they weren't even caught in the trap. Um, so it was really fascinating to watch these snakes uh, be able to utilize that resource that was artificially created by us to monitor salamander populations. That's amazing. Did, so did you, did you guys do anything about it as part of the study? Did you try to deal with it? Did you move the snakes? Did you feel like you were artificially influencing, you know, the study itself? We ultimately did move some snakes, um, especially some that were there every night. Um, we didn't move them very far, just up out into the woods. Um, I mean, yes and no, they were definitely there eating things along the fence, uh, but they were there, there naturally. There were a lot of cotton mouths in those wetlands anyway, um, per, because of the food resources there. So I don't know that we were artificially increasing mortality rates or anything like that, um, because they were there anyway, but it's, it was an issue and is still an issue running drift fences in that type of wetland. Yeah. Interesting. Heidi. You have a snake story for us? Well, I don't really think this is fair because Houston is obviously <laughs> out in the field more than I am. But um, I do have one and it actually doesn't really involve me that much other than the fact that I was there. Um, so some of you may be aware that in 2012, we started a, um, a series event called Places You've Never Herped. And I remember the very first one that we did, it was along the Ultimaha. And there was a young girl that came, Kelsey Kincaid. And I think she might've been, I don't know, 12 or 13 at the time, but she was very interested in snakes. And she came with her dad and she wanted to learn how to handle venomous snakes on her own. 
And Chris, you were there and you had a giant compared to this girl couldn't have been 90 pounds. You had a giant Eastern Diamondback that was like bigger than her and taught her how to handle that Eastern Diamondback. And she was so comfortable and just kind of really natural in all of her movements. And it just made me so happy that somebody that young was interested in what we were doing. And, and, you know, I think she's still into it. And there were a lot of like young kids that started on those events, um, you know, that people might know Noah Fields, Daniel Thompson, uh, Bronk Rice, all of those kids came to that first place that you've never heard and are still part of the organization. And I think still come to a lot of the events. So that is my snake story, though. It has nothing to do with me, but watching a 12-year-old girl handle an Eastern Diamondback was comfortably was pretty amazing. Yeah, and I should say that I would not let any 12-year-old <laughs> handle a giant Diamondback. It was also incredibly docile um, <laughs> Diamondback and a pretty um, unique individual uh, in Kelsey. So, um Great. Well, thank you both so much. Where can people uh, find you if they want to learn a little bit more about you um, or learn more about the work that you're doing? It's, uh, you know, it's your uh, best social media place that they can track you down or website. Uh, for me, it would be Twitter. You can find me uh, at the snake dude on Twitter. And I try to keep it mostly science and animal based. Um, and I also write a blog, which you can find on the Orian website uh, every month. So those are the best places for me. I am pretty behind the scenes of the organization. So uh, I'm, I don't have social media handles, but if you wanted to contact me directly, my email is H-H-A-L-L, so hall at oriansociety.org. Great. Well, thank you both so much for helping me kick off this podcast series. And I thank all the listeners and I want everybody to remember snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild.